One of the most well-known stories in all the Bible is found in 1 Samuel 17. So let me ask you to turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you've grown up in the United States, you know the story of David and Goliath. Certainly, if you grew up in another part of the world, you very well could know it as well. Maybe you didn't hear the story at church, but, but everyone seemingly knows the contrast between the small and the mighty. And it's well known, I think, among both Christians and non-Christians alike. That Even non-Christians may not know the details, but they know that the little guy wins. He beats the big guy. And I think when we come to a story like this in our Bible reading or in our Sunday school class or in teaching, then I, I think we are in danger of missing the point. We might look at this story and think, well, that's a nice story. A small young man defeats a giant. But, but what I, would, I would submit to you that, that that's not what the story is about and that we need to be careful about um, looking at the story and missing the point. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think there's much to learn from David's fearlessness, you know, but, but that's not the point of the text. That's not why the author wrote this text. And, and certainly we can learn from his faith but I think that's only part of a larger point that we need to see in the text. So it's a longer passage, so I'm just going to read the first 11 verses to start with, and then we'll, we'll go through it as we, as we move, move on. All right, let's start in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. Saul and the men of, his, of Israel were gathered and camped in, in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side with Israel, uh, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you, servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then he will become. Uh, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail, if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, "I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together." When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So let me begin by saying this story is not. Can I get some help here? This story is not about facing your giants in life. Okay? And that's, I think, often how we hear this story. This is often how it's taught, even in churches like ours. And, and um, I think a lot of people teach it with the point that, you know, we have giants in our life, and God can help you overcome your giants. So let's say your giant is some kind of financial problem or some kind of marital conflict or some kind of a relational issue or a lack of a job or loss of something then you need to overcome your giant. 
Well, that's not what this text is about. It has nothing to do with giants in David's life. In fact, Goliath didn't even know who David was. So if that's not what this text is about, how can we know what this passage is about? And I think the answer to that question is the same way that we know what any passage is about, and that is that we have to examine the text like we examine any other piece of normal writing. That is, whether it's a, a newspaper or a novel or, uh, you know, teachers, an essay from your students. We need to understand what the author's intent, what did he intend to convey in the text that was being, being written? Because that's all we have to go on. We can't go on what we think might have happened or what he think, we, we think he might be thinking. Instead, we have to go based on what he actually said. And, and, and I believe that with any, torp, any type of normal writing, there can only be one meaning. There can only be one meaning. And we can't force on the text what it never meant. So a text can never mean what it never meant. And so if you want to learn more about how to find the main point of a text of Scripture, then we're going to have a class this fall where we take 12 weeks to work through studying our Bibles. And, and that will be uh, during the 10 o'clock hour on Sundays. But let me give you a Cliff, Cliff Notes version um, how to determine the meaning of a text. The first step in determining the meaning of the text, let me see if I have this. Um, okay, we need to know the meaning. First step is to determine the, the genre. Okay, so what kind of writing are we looking at? So what do we have here in 1 Samuel 17? Do we have prose, which is like literature or, or didact, didactic teaching? Um, do we have prophecy? Do we have narrative, apocalyptic, poetry, wisdom? What do we have here? We have a narrative. Okay, history would be a, a type of narrative. But yeah, we have a narrative here. And so, now that we have the genre, we need to determine the main point. And one of the key things that we need to look for when it comes to finding the main point of the text is look for repetition. Look for repetition. Okay, there's a joke in there somewhere. But we need to look for repetition. One of the main things that I do every time I study a passage of Scripture is I look for the topic of a passage. And one of the best ways that you can find what the author is talking about is simply by looking at what the repeated statements or words are. What are the repeated ideas? And here, there are a couple of repeated ideas. I mean, we could go in and say, well, David is repeated over and over again. That's true. And Goliath is repeated over and over again. That's true. Um, but, but other than those two, I mean, basically from there, you can know it's about David and Goliath. But what is it about David and Goliath? Well, in verse 11 and verse 24, we have the idea that Israel is greatly afraid the other idea that comes up over and over again, as we'll see as we go through this text, is that, that um, Goliath is coming to defy, defy this idea of defiance. He's coming to defy the ranks of Israel. He's coming to defy the armies of the living God. And then David will say, when he gets to, to verse 47, that he's actually defied God himself. And then the, the, um, another re- uh, idea that's repeated throughout the text is that the Lord is the one who delivered, that he's the one who handed Goliath over to David. David, and, and so we need to understand what are the things that are repeated throughout the text. And that's just a very simple exercise. You read through the text, and sometimes what I do is I just read o- over and over again. I try to read each text at least ten times before, I, before I'm um, done with the study. Actually, that's the very first thing that I do. And I'm looking for repeated ideas. The next thing we need to do is find the arc of the story. The arc of the story. So, Every narrative, this is only for narrative literature, that's why it's important we understand, for narrative literature, 
We need to look for the arc of the story. What's the conflict of the story? What's the climax of the story? And what's the resolution? And if you think about this in any type of um, book that you read or uh, that's, that's a novel or that sort of thing or history uh, or any movie that you watch, there's an arc of the story. There's something that, that is a conflict that needs to be overcome, that you know that there's something wrong here that needs to be settled. And, and that's what's going to help drive. When you find that climax or that conflict that's generated, then that will help you to determine what the main point of the text is. So what is the conflict in this text? What is it that just kind of, if we didn't know the story, what is it that drives against us? And it is that Goliath is defying the armies of Israel. We know how that comes to a climax. The climax really is in verses 45 to, verse 40 to 47 where David actually goes out to the battlefield and he fights with the Goliath. And then the resolution is that David wins, right? David wins and Saul gives him um, all these uh, different prizes. So find the arc of the story. That, that will help drive you at what the author is trying to point you to. Because all, sometimes we get focused on so many small details, but those, the author's just giving those for setting or, or other reasons. We need to find what the main uh, conflict is and how it's resolved. And then fourthly, we need to find the pivotal statements. So what kind of pivotal statements are there in the text? What, what is it that it's, the story is moving one way until this statement comes along and it kind of switches things or puts, sheds a new light on things? And that's, I think, David's speech in verses 45 to 47. So we'll get there. And what we're going to find is that David is most concerned not about his own name, not about his own reputation, David's not concerned about the riches that he's been promised from Saul. He's not concerned about defeating his giants because ultimately the story is not about David. It's about David's God. It's about David working to vindicate the name of his God. It's about God delivering David and Israel. So here's the theme that I would suggest to you um, based on my understanding, and that is that God uses people who by faith take risk to defend His name. This is about defending God's name. God uses people who by faith take risks to defend His name. There are two main parts to the text. There, there is the defiance of God's enemy and... Let me find the next one. Sorry about this. And then the faith of God's servant. So the defiance of God's enemy and the faith of God's servant. So first, the defiance of God's enemy. In verses 1 through 3, like with every narrative story, you're going to have a setting. This kind of just sets up the story for you so you kind of know some of the, 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 the basics. And this narration or narrative starts out very slowly in order to show what kind of great force the Philistines are. And then when we get to verses 4, and th- 4 through 11, it, it just blows up really fast. The story just gets really intense because that's when Goliath enters. And so I think that the author here shows some of the layout, some of the, some of the important topography or geography, and then he moves on to the person of Goliath. So first, in verses 1 through 3, we have this important battleground that's going on. This area is owned, notice in verse 1, it's owned by Judah. So they had owned this area, or controlled maybe is a better way to put it, they controlled this area of Soko. And the Philistines felt like if they could control this area, if they could take over this valley where this battle is going to be and, and take over that city of Soko, then that would kind of give them uh, 
the ability to come in and, and start attacking places like Bethlehem and, and Jerusalem, which was not actually controlled by Israel at this time. But they would be able to take over much of the southern region of Israel. So this is a key battleground that's taking place, and, or at which this is taking place. And so they're wanting to eventually attack some, some of the major cities, including the capital city at that time, which is Saul's home, hometown of Gibeah. So that's why the Philistines are here, and they think that they have the upper hand on Israel. In verses 4 through 11, here's where the story really starts to get intense, where you have Goliath come out. We, we saw this here, where Goliath mocks Israel and effectively Israel's God. Now, Goliath had a huge advantage over every single person in Israel. First, we see his size in verse 4, that he was six cubits and a span. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, you might see that one cubit equals 18 inches. And the way that they would do this is they didn't have measuring tapes like we do, so they would just use parts of their body often. And so a cubit was from the elbow to the top of the finger. That was about 18 inches for them. And then a span is from when you stretch your hand out from your pinky to your thumb, which is about nine inches. So if you stacked up six cubits, six times 18, and then add nine inches, then you have a man who stands at nine feet, nine inches, which is three inches shorter than a basketball rim or one of these lights from where you're sitting. sitting. That's, that's pretty close to 10 feet right there. That's how tall Goliath was. And if you were built like Shaquille O'Neal, he'd probably weigh about 450 pounds at nine foot nine. If you were built like Minute Bull, who just died this past week, then he'd probably be closer to 275 pounds. But, but whatever the case, he was a large, large man. Not only did he have advantage in his size, but also in his equipment. In verses 5 through 7, he had this bronze helmet. And then he, his armor, this scaled armor, basically like a, a breastplate, weighed 125 pounds. Any, anyone in here weigh 125 pounds so we can get an idea of how much he would be carrying? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. Some of, some of you people that weigh more. Oh, yeah, that's me. Um, he also had these shin guards in verse 6, and then a spear that, whose just the head on the spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition to that, we find that he has this shield that's being carried by someone else at the end of verse 7. His shield car- carrier also walked with him. So, apparently, in addition to this, he also had his, sh- his sword in his sheath, because remember, David, after he defeats him, is going to take that sword out and use it. But, but what we should think about when we think about Goliath is like, the, the top of the line modern military equipment that you could possibly have in battle. That, that maybe he would be like a tank because he's strong and large and maybe a little bit slow moving but extremely powerful and, you, and well fortified and, and very difficult to, to defeat. That was Goliath. Well, he makes this appeal in verses 8 through 10. You have this towering man standing up there with the state-of-the-art equipment and he yells out to Israel and notice... Again, what he says at the end of verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, with a man of that size okay, and that kind of equipment, how might we think that Israel will respond to, to that kind of a person? And, and the way that we would think is actually what happens. Verse 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And notice who is afraid. It's not just the, the army, right? But what does the text say? It says Saul and Israel. 
Isn't that interesting? Do you remember Saul? Saul should be the one that's going out to fight. He's got some experience. He's already won a couple battles. And, and of all people, he would be the most well-equipped, not just because of his experience. Do you remember what 1 Samuel 9 said about him? That he was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. So if the average Israelite was five foot or five and a half feet, which is probably what the size of people were at that time in, in that region, then Saul very likely could be six foot or six and a half feet. And if anybody should go up and fight Goliath, it should be their tallest one, the one who's, who's of great stature. But not only was Saul unwilling to, to fight him, but he was afraid and he had no plan to defeat Goliath. He just kind of stood there and stunned, like, what are we going to do? Who's going to go and, and be our guinea pig, so to speak? Well, David learns of Goliath's defiance in verses, 20, or verses 12 to 27. We learn that David goes down to the battlefield or goes over to the battlefield. And let me read this section beginning in verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went were Eliab the firstborn, and the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. So notice how this story begins in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered. So the, the author first introduces us to the Philistines. And then now in verse 12, instead of saying something like, uh, Jesse, Jesse says to David, gather up your weapons and go and attack this Philistine. Instead, it just says, gather up uh, some food and take it to your brothers. In other words, Jesse doesn't really understand what's going on here. And he's simply sending David out to, to give them some food. David had seven brothers. Three of them were in battle. Maybe the others weren't old enough to, to be in battle yet. It's not clear why they weren't there. But David makes the trip from Bethlehem, where his father lived, to the valley of Elah, which is about 15 miles. And his twofold task, according to verse 17, was to feed them, and then verse 18, to find out how they were doing. And, and the reason that they needed to be fed was because they didn't have the infrastructure that our military has, where they have people who are, their only responsibility is to make sure that people are being fed so that they can continue in battle. And the ancient Near East families would be responsible for feeding their military um, representatives. And so while David's there, notice what happens that Goliath shouts his appeal. Verse 21, Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army, and then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And he was talking with them, and, and as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. What were these same words? Well, verse 10, right? Who's going to well, verses 8 through 10. Who's going to come out and fight me? 
And then verse 10, I, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. David hears it with his own ears. And notice how Israel responds again. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So, again, Israel's response was the same as it was this first time it's recorded in verse 11, which is they're greatly afraid along with Saul. And David sees their fear and, and then he hears about the reward. David hears about the reward. The, the soldiers are talking to each other. Do you realize what the king will give to us? He's going to give us three rewards in verse 25. He's going to give us riches. He's going to give us his daughter in marriage. And he's also going to exempt our family from taxes. Who, who else wants that as a reward, right? It'd be great. David's, so David asks about what's going on here in verses 26 and 27. David spoke to the men who were standing by. So he's just overhearing. They're not talking to him at this point. He overhears them and says, what is it that's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. So here we have the first record of David speaking in the Bible. And what does he say? Who dares to defy the armies of the living God? Goliath was not afraid of Israel. Israel was deeply afraid of Goliath because he was strong and fearsome. But you know, David wasn't afraid. David recognized there was something bigger at stake than, than standing off and being fearful about the situation. Instead, he recognized that th there's something much bigger going on. This man is defying God. God's honor is at stake here. And to defy or to taunt the armies of Israel was to taunt God. The reason I know that is because of verse 45. Let me just uh, kind of fast forward to verse 45 and notice what David says. David said to the Philistine, this is as they're going into battle, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come unto you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. I come to you in the name of the God whom you've taunted. When you defy God's army of Israel, you defy God. That is that David recognizes that God is so closely identified with His people, with Israel, that for Goliath to defy Israel is for Goliath to defy God. And do you know what we need more than anything in our day? We need people who know and love God and who speak into a godless culture the truth about God. This is David. So far, the truth about God has not been the concern of Israel or King Saul. They're not concerned about God's name being defamed. They're concerned about what the outcome of the battle is going to be. David's concerned about God's name being dragged through the mud. So we have the defiance of God's enemy. And then secondly, get caught up here. Secondly, we have the faith of God's servant the faith of God's servant who is defending God's name. In verses 28 through 58, we see David's faith on display. Let me just make a couple observations with regard to 
what it looks like to defend God's name or maybe an example from the life of David of what it looks like to defend God's name. That's ultimately what this passage is about. It's about God and His glory. Sometimes I would suggest to you that defending God's name looks like pride. Defending God's name sometimes looks like pride. Follow along as I read verse 28. Now Eliab, his his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? And he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. David's words and actions give us a window into his heart. And and here we see that David is primarily concerned with defending God's name. But when David takes a step of faith and starts asking questions about why is it this, this uncircumcised Philistine is allowed to keep saying this every day, two times a day? When he finally says something, do you know what, how his older brother sees that? He sees it as pride. You're so insolent. You're just, you're just trying to get, cause trouble. Go back to your few sheep that you have to care for. I think his older brother perhaps was thinking that David was more concerned about a reward, becoming Saul's successor. But do you know David was primarily concerned not about any of those things, but about God's reputation. So he says, wait a second, can I even say anything? Was I not just asking a question? Can I not even speak, as the NIV says? Sometimes defending God's name looks like pride. Secondly, sometimes defending God's name is resisted by our superior. In verses 31 to 33, sometimes we want to take a stand for the sake of God's name and the person who has responsibility over us, whether it be at work or or, or somewhere else, resists us. Notice verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard and the They were told to Saul and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. For you're but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, uh, I guess that's for the next one, so we'll stop there. Saul says, How could you possibly win? There's no chance that you have because you are but a boy, but a young man, probably a, a, a young teenager at this point. And he has been fighting since he's a teenager. Who do you think has the advantage? We're just going to put out some Vegas odds on the fight. Who do you think is going to win? Okay, who's going to have the odds? And, and uh, David, you're a huge underdog here. There's no chance for you to win. And so David is not concerned about the odds. You know, he, He's concerned about taking a risk for the sake of defending God's name. Thirdly, defending God's name requires faith-filled risk-taking. Verses 34 to 40. Faith-filled risk-taking. Faith-filled risk-taking. Now, there are several observations that I want us to see here. First, faith-filled risk-taking builds on past experiences of trusting God. So David here is not just saying, you know, this might work. He's remembered how God has worked before, and based on what God has done before, this is how I know my God will be now. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, and I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Faith-filled risk-taking builds on past experiences of trusting God. David had been delivered from a lion and a bear before. He's, He's saying, listen, I've had experience with ferocious animals before, 
and I've won. And this is no different. Next, faith-filled risk-taking is most concerned about God's name. This goes along with, I think, the overall point of the text, that, that if we're going to be most concerned about God's name, then we're going to, with or by faith, take risks for God. This is what David's doing because he's most concerned about God's name. Look at verse 36 as he explains this to Saul. Your servant has killed both a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Listen, God is going to give me the strength to defeat Goliath. Now, how, how can David be so confident that God's going to give him the strength? What was it that made David different than Saul and Israel who, in verse 11, were greatly afraid? The answer is, is found in verse 37. And it is that David had seen and remembered that God has wor- had worked on his behalf before. How did David know that, that God would deliver him from the Philistine if he had delivered him from the, the blind and the bear? And the answer is that, that, that the Lord was behind it. Verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So David's here saying, Listen, when I win, and I will, I'm not going to get the glory because do you know who delivered me from that lion and that bear? It wasn't because of my prowess or my ability. It was because God delivered me and God will deliver me from this one who taunts the armies of the living God. Faith-filled risk-taking is most concerned about God's name and and puts their confidence in God's name. Then number three, faith-filled risk-taking is confident in God's power. Verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from these animals, these ferocious animals, will deliver me from this ferocious enemy. The reason that David defeated those animals was because the Lord was behind it. The deliverance belonged to God. And now God was going to deliver David before all people, that is, all of Israel and the Philistines, so that they would be able to see. And we should learn much from David in this regard. And that is that our faith is strengthened by the successes of past faith. So have you found God to be faithful to you in previous times? Has God shown Himself strong in the past? Has God been trustworthy to you? If God has not failed you in the past, then what makes you think that this obstacle ahead of you is too great? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? See, David isn't going to win here because he's greatly skilled and tough and courageous, although... That does play into it a little bit. David wins because God is on his side. And that's what he recognized was most important. Saul responds at the end of the verse and says, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Verses 38-40 through show us that faith-filled risk-taking relies on simple planning. So he's not going to go and say, You know, give me all of the, all of the armament that you have. Give me the best weaponry. He says, No, I don't need any battle gear. I only need a stick and five smooth stones. Verse 38, And Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had had. And even in his pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. So, 
go back to how we find the, the main point of a text, you can sense that this tension is building, isn't it? You have this one who for 40 days now is calling out to Israel and saying, who is going to come and fight me? And now David has, has said, listen, I'm going to do it. I'm going out there. And he goes out with practically nothing as far as weapons. And we find in verses 41 through 49 that defending God's name is never lonely. It's never lonely. We might look at David standing there before great Goliath and think, who's got his back? You know, because this is David against Goliath and his shield bearer. You know, it's kind of not fair. He's got the size advantage and the number advantage. But when the strength of God goes up against the strength of the strongest warrior, God wins every time. In verse, verses 41 through 44, we see that Goliath is disdained, that, the, that David would even come out. Verse 41, Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the fields. Again, it's not clear how old David was. I I tend to think that he was probably a young teenager because he has seven older brothers. Only three of them are old enough to be in battle. So he's probably got four brothers there in between him and his oldest brothers. So it's likely that he's probably just a young teenager. He could have been uh, kind of tall. Uh, the fact that he was wearing Saul's armor, armor may have meant that he was, he was a little bit taller. But, but whatever the case, David goes out there seemingly alone, but, but not alone, because God was with him. And notice David's response, or David's, David's cry, or his response to Goliath here in verses 45 and ver- through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hands, into our hands. David was not alone, was he? He was confident that God was there and that God was going to to help him. Here's the climax in verses 48 and 49. Then it happened, when the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. So with all of this set up, for 47 verses, we have all of this narrative that talks about this, this great battle that's about to happen And it's over just in a few short verses, isn't it? These stones that David would have carried were probably two or three inches in diameter and they would weigh between one and two and a half pounds. 
and apparently they can be thrown from a sling at a speed of 150 miles per hour, generating 67 newtons of force, which is enough to pierce his skin and actually cause the, the stone to sink into his head. It's the equivalent of, of a person laying down on the ground and having a 16-pound bowling ball being dropped on their head. That's, that's the force that's behind a stone of that size at that speed. And David puts him out of his misery. He may or may not be dead at this point, but David finishes off here in verses 50 to 54, and we see that defending God's name encourages faith in others, or at least it causes their fear to go away. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shearim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. So David chops off his head and there you have this strong, powerful enemy, Goliath, laying down probably face first on the ground without a head. And it kind of reminds me of what happened to Dagon. Right? Where Dagon's sitting there at the threshold and with the Ark of the Covenant there, God causes Dagon to fall on his face before this Ark and to lose his head. And this is Goliath. Who can stand against the living God? David's faith caused confidence in others because Philistines started to flee and Israel started to pursue and they pursued him all the way back to Ekron and along the way there are just dead bodies everywhere. Remember what Goliath said, hey, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David said, I'm going to feed your Phil- all you Philistines to the birds. And the birds certainly did have a feast that day. Anyone who defies God will be defeated. Maybe not temporally, but ultimately. Finally, defending God's name does not go unnoticed in verses 55 to 58. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I, I don't know. The king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, we might think about what's happened up until this point and think, well, how would Saul not know who David was? But that's not really the point. The point is not that Saul didn't know who David was. He already had a conversation with him, even in this chapter. The point is that Saul doesn't know who his father is. Because there is one of the rewards is, right, riches, one of his daughters in marriage, and then he's going to have his whole family, probably extended family, exempt from taxes, and Saul needs to know who to, to, to make sure that that is carried out for. And that's why he know, needs to know his father. As I mentioned last time, from 1 Samuel 16 to the end of 1 Samuel, the author is showing the contrast between Saul and David. Saul rises to power and then he starts to decline, and as he rises, David, or as he falls, David starts to, to rise. And, and we see that kind of contrast here, don't we? that Saul is fearful of Goliath, unwilling to fight, and David is fearless. Saul is not concerned about the name of God being defied. 
That's David's main concern. But this story is not about David. It's not about him gaining respect or notoriety. It's not about him winning the prizes that were offered. This is about David speaking on behalf of God. This is about David thinking about Goliath like God thinks about Goliath. This is about David trusting in God even when there is a real possibility of death. And I think David could stand with great courage and confidence in God knowing that even if he were to die, that at least he did not have to live the rest of his life with God's name being defamed. That that I think he had the, the mindset of the three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3 when they said, we know that God can deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if not, we still will not bow down to your false god. And David, I think, is going into that battle with that kind of mindset. I know that my God can deliver me. He delivered me before. I know He can do it again. But even if not, I will not stand for, for this uncircumcised Philistine to taunt my God and to smear His name. So this is the main point. It's the honor of God's name. And we must fight for the sake of God's name. Let's think about this for a second because does God really need our protection? Does God really need us to protect His name? Let's think about David here in 1 Samuel 17. Did God really need David to protect him from the antagonistic taunts of Goliath? And not technically, right? Couldn't God, if He pleased, choose to strike Goliath dead or do what He did to the sons of Korah, just open up the ground right where Goliath is and then close it back up? Swallow him whole. Certainly God has that power, doesn't He? He has the power to protect His own name without our involvement. But you know, in God's sovereign wisdom, He has chosen to use people who depend on Him through faith to defend His name. He's chosen people like you and me who are willing to speak up for Him. Not because He needs help, but because He's kind enough to use people who depend on Him in faith. You remember Jesus when He would go to different towns and He would heal people. And then sometimes He would leave a town because there was no faith. There's no more people for me to heal here because there was no faith. What, is it that Jesus is, He's got His hands tied? He's handcuffed from being able to heal people unless they, you know, please pour some of the elixir of your faith onto this so that I can heal you. That wasn't the point. The point is that God often works through people who have faith. It's not that He can't work apart from faith. He often does. But, but the most, most frequent way that God works is through people who believe in Him. People who are concerned about defending His name. Is that the way that we view life? Are those the glasses through which we view the defiance of God's name in our culture? Sure, we're quick to be concerned about our own reputation, but... When was the last time that you were concerned about God's reputation? When were you more concerned about how God sees this action or this circumstance or this event instead of how is this going to make me look to other people? When were you concerned about God's name being defamed? When were you concerned about God being defied by His enemies enemies because we live in a world that constantly is defying God? Does this bother us or have we become so callous to it that, you know what, that's, in a sense, that's what believers do. 
So how can we do this? How can we defend God's name? Well, I, I think of at least three ways. First, it might be in your home. Maybe there's a TV program that's being watched that dishonors God. And even though the rest of the family is, is deep into the storyline, and they want to see how it ends, defending God's name might be saying, listen, should we really be watching this? Or if you're the, the leader of the home, you know, we shouldn't be watching this. It, it might be at work. It might be speaking up for God to a lost coworker who calls God evil. He sees a, a current event that takes place, sees some great catastrophe, and all these people die and say, what kind of God is that? And he starts to defy God's name that way. And maybe it would be easier to just kind of look down at our toes and not say anything. But defending God's name might be speaking up in that situation and saying, no, God is always good. And what that should point us to is, is the idea that, that there is coming a time for all of us to be judged. Not that they were receiving punishment because the Tower of Siloam fell on them, but, but there's coming judgment for all of us and we need to be ready. Maybe defending God's name might be something that we do here at this church and saying the hard truth in love to another member who's defiling himself or the body of Christ through some sinful words or actions. That's not the most popular thing to do. That's not how we win friends and influence people when we stand up for the sake of God's name. But that's what we are called to do. That's what God expects of us. And that's who God, whom God loves to work through. He loves to work through people who trust Him and are concerned about what He's concerned about, defending His name. And so who is it that's going to stand up with David and fight for the defense of God's name? Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the example that You've left for us in Your Word. And Lord, it is... um, difficult because we have a lot of preconceived ideas about what this story means, but it seems clear from the text that the point is that that we must work to defend God's name and that you work through people who stand up in faith, who take risks for the sake of your name, who are most concerned about your reputation, not about our own, our own popularity or what this might look like or what the long-term results are for us personally, but, but what, what does this mean for your reputation? And Lord, I pray that You would help each one of us to be better at, at living by faith, at, at doing the hard, um, right thing and standing against the tide oftentimes when it's not popular, when we are kind of going against the odds from a human perspective. Lord, help us to remember that You are always on our side, that You will never leave us nor forsake us, and that You have the power to deliver us from any any challenge, any trial. But even if we die, having fought for the sake of Your your reputation, Lord, we will have died earning or receiving something much better, and that is Your great and precious promises to those who love You and to those who who give themselves in service to You. Lord, what, what this passage is, call, is not calling for is some kind of a crusade where we fight against people physically, but, but our battle is against, is against the, the rulers and the, 
spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And so, Lord, you haven't called us to fight physically a holy war, to tear down people who don't who defy you, but certainly we must stand up uh, in our conversations, in our relationships, to defend your name. And sometimes it's hard to know where to draw the line. Sometimes we are a little overly zealous and we go beyond what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, give us wisdom as to how to do this. But, Lord, I think the, the main problem that, that I have and, and likely these each of these have is that, that we tend to not be concerned about your name enough. We're more concerned about how we are viewed by others, how this will be taken, um, what this is going to do for for us and the consequences that will come instead of what does this mean for your name and the advancement of your work. Lord, help us to be faith-filled risk-takers. In Jesus' name, amen.